A new book by the late Pope Emeritus, Benedict XVI, has been released just weeks after his passing. It is sending shockwaves through the Vatican, and Pope Francis sits down for a bombshell interview. Father Gerald Murray is here to analyze it all. And a new documentary claims that Disney has gone from a family-friendly American institution to a bastion of political ideology and social engineering. President of the Catholic League, Dr. Bill Donahue, is here to tell us about the League's new film, Walt's Disenchanted Kingdom. And a Nigerian priest was burned alive in his home. And as viewers of this program know, this is not an isolated incident. Director of the Center for Religious Freedom, Nina Shea, tells us why attacks on priests in Nigeria are on the rise the world over. Begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. This is an important show for you tonight. Uh, if you'd like to comment, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover. Let's begin, and I'd love to hear from you. Get your reaction to these stories as we share them with you. Uh, an unexpected blockbuster new book by Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI was released posthumously this week, entitled what is Christianity? It's currently only in Italian, but in it, the late pontiff examines the current state of the church and makes some startling observations, while the current pope sits for an interview with the Associated Press. With analysis of all these stories and more, I'm joined by canon lawyer, priest of the Archdiocese of New York, Father Gerald Murray. Father, thank you for being here. I want to begin with the late Pope Benedict's book. Now, look, the deal was it could only be released after he died because, it, and I'm paraphrasing here in his words, there would be a, a titanic reaction because of what happened when he released that book with Cardinal Sarah on priestly celibacy. He claims he didn't want to put himself or Christendom through that. Thus, the posthumous book, Classic Benedict. Uh, your thoughts on the timing of the release of this book? Well, this is the fruit of 10 years of prayer and study. Remember, he said he wanted to write after he left the pontificate. Mm. So now we're going to get to see those writings. One of them has already been published in a German magazine. That was his reflections on the sexual abuse crisis. Uh, so I'm looking forward to right. the other essays. But I, it's considerate of him uh, to wait until after his death to publish them, because now there's no longer uh, this idea that, you know, there's a conflict here between the former pope and the pope. Now this is simply his reflections uh, that he's leaving for the whole church to uh, meditate on. Hmm. Here's some of what Benedict writes, and this is about the breakdown in seminary formation after Vatican II. He writes, in several seminaries, homosexual clubs were formed that more or less openly and clearly transformed the climate of the seminaries. One bishop, who had previously been a rector, had allowed pornographic films to be shown to seminarians, allegedly with the intent of thereby empowering them to resist against behavior contrary to the faith. 
he goes on to write that in many seminaries of the day, his own books, as Ratzinger, were considered harmful literature, and seminarians caught reading them were actually deemed unfit. Father Jerry, what does it say about the bishops in charge of these seminaries and dioceses and their belief in church teaching and practice? Well, that's an accurate indictment, and that did happen. That was a famous case in the United States. I was Bishop Kent Utner, uh, and at the time when this was first revealed, uh, you know, he was—Rome looked at him again, and then they finally approved him. But uh, I think that was a mistake. Showing pornography to seminarians should immediately disqualify you from being a rector of a seminary, let alone a bishop of a diocese. And then homosexual clubs, uh, you know, people of same-sex attraction, same -sex attraction uh, are not suitable, according to the Vatican, uh, to become priests. And the reason is that their effective life has such deficiencies and it poses a temptation for them and to others in the seminary. Uh, and we've seen that. How many mm -hmm. cases do we have uh, that have been reported over the last 20 years of priests who became active homosexuals and it started in the seminary? This is not a good uh, uh, thing for the church. It needs to be rooted out. People of homosexual attraction need pastoral care, but they don't need to be made priests. Pope Benedict also addresses the current state of the West. I want your reaction to this. He says, the modern Western world state, on the one hand, sees itself as a great power of tolerance that breaks with the foolish and pre-rational traditions of all religions. Uh, moreover, with its radical manipulation of man and the twisting of the sexes through gender ideology, it stands in particular opposition to Christianity. Father Jerry, um, this pope, uh, Pope Benedict, spoke so often of the dictatorship of relativism. Uh, your reaction to this, which touches on the same subject matter? Absolutely the case. Remember, with the Obama administration trying to force the Little Sisters of the Poor to provide abortion coverage in the health care plan they gave their employees? Uh, that was mm. the use of government power to compel people to reject their religion. Uh, similar things are going on all the time. Catholicism is called bigotry because of our teaching on sexual morality. No, in a free society, Religious people enjoy the same rights as non-religious people and should not be subject to government pressure. We see that all the time. Uh, it's a big problem. Now this transgender thing, trying to force Catholic schools and others through different uh, laws and regulations uh, to participate in things that are immoral and don't make sense. Mm -hmm. So uh, he was a prophet. Pope Benedict definitely was a prophet. Uh, Benedict XVI also addresses the politicization that he says is operating in the church today. He, he writes, in fact, today the church is largely seen only as a kind of political apparatus. In fact, it is spoken of only using political categories. And that is true even of bishops who formulate their idea about the church of tomorrow largely, almost exclusively, in political terms. Now, Father Jerry, uh, th this could apply to what we're seeing now from the Synod on Synodality and certainly the Synod underway in Germany. It's very much the case. You know, Bishop Batzing, who was the president of the Bishops' Conference, says he wants a new type of Catholicism, a Catholicism that's different. Well, wait a minute. 
if Catholicism is the true faith given to us by Jesus Christ, which it is, then we don't need a new version of that. We need to be more faithful to the existing mm. version. No, the political categories come up all the time when people who are faithful to the doctrine are labeled as rigid, intransigent and conservatives who are basically attached to things from the past because they're afraid of new things. This is nonsense. People who believe in the truth want to conserve what God gave us, but just not out of fear. The only fear we have is losing the faith or being unfaithful to God. But we have no fear of dealing with new questions. In fact, uh, that's one of the great things about the Pope Benedict, Pope Francis, uh, or Pope John Paul II, and I'm thinking to the back, uh, that they confronted modern questions right out in the open. Think about the catechism of the Catholic Church. So this is where mm -hmm. uh, people using political categories are really misunderstanding the nature of faith. Hmm. Uh, Benedict also addresses the suffering church today. Um, and I, they, well, I'll read this to you and tell you who I thought of as I read this. Uh, it is very important to contrast the lies and half-truths of the devil with the whole truth. Yes, sin and evil in the church are there. But even today, there is also the holy church that is indestructible. Even today, there are many men who humbly believe, suffer, and love and in whom the true God, the God that loves, is shown to us. Even today, God has his witnesses, martyrs in the world. We just have to be vigilant to see and hear them. Uh, Father, I, I couldn't help but think of Cardinal Joseph Zen uh, when I read this, uh, who I'm going to talk about a bit later, but your thoughts. Yes, I mean, we do have martyrs. We have people who are faithful and are in jail right now, particularly in Red China, uh, because they're faithful to the Catholic faith. Uh, this has been witnessed Africa, Asia. Uh, we have different martyrs uh, throughout the world as priests uh, being killed in Nigeria uh, by Islamic forces, which are radical and hateful. Um, no, and then on the ordinary level, so many bishops and priests who remain faithful to the tradition of the church, unlike the majority of the German hierarchy, they're not interested in rejecting Christ's teaching about sexuality and creation. They want to uphold the faith. Right now, our bishops are going through a Eucharistic mm -hmm. revival in the United States, and I applaud them, because we need to love better the mm -hmm. gifts that God gave us, not throw God's teaching into the trash bin under the claim that we're irrelevant unless we adopt modern errors. Mm -hmm. I want to move on to a few other stories before we run out of time, and it's very related. Um, Vaticanista Sandro Magister uh, revealed this week that it was indeed the late Cardinal George Pell who wrote that anonymous memo uh, under the pseudonym uh, Demos, uh, critical explicitly of Pope Francis's pontificate. Father Jerry, is this surprising? And what does the tenor of Pell's memo tell us about the gravity of the situation? There were some who say this couldn't be Pell. He would never do this. He'd never say anything, you know, this uh, direct about the current pope's uh, pontificate or the way he was governing the church. Your thoughts when you, when you realized and read who the true author of this memo was? Yes, I trust Sandro Magister. He said that Pell handed him the document, so I believe that's what happened. Uh, Cardinal Pell did one, not want to publish it under his name, uh, but he wanted the message to go out. And, you know, uh, hmm. Pope Francis just gave a long interview to the AP in which he said he welcomes criticism, uh, in which he welcomes people, you know, revealing uh, what they think. Um, and let's just say this, 
Uh, Cardinal Pell expressed things that many other bishops and priests and even cardinals have said. I think back to the Dubia cardinals. They didn't say anything except yeah. pose questions, and they were rebuffed. They weren't even given the door, you know, shown uh, entrance into the Vatican Palace to speak to the Pope. So I would say that, you know, if there's dissatisfaction in an organization, the worst thing you do is try to clamp down on it and pretend everything's all right. The best thing you do is deal with the criticisms. And, you know, as regards this idea that this has been a catastrophic pontificate, well, let's argue it out based on facts, not the idea, though, you can't insult anybody and you can't insult the pope by questioning anything he does. You know, that's not an attitude of a mature person in dealing with problems. And we have serious problems in the church. You mentioned, I mentioned German bishops. This is driving me nuts. These bishops are trying to destroy Catholicism in their country, and uh, the Vatican better step on them because otherwise they're going to use their power and their money to afflict another religion on the Christians in Germany. This is very, very wrong. Yeah. Uh, well, after the damaging revelations uh, by Archbishop Gonswain, uh, Benedict's secretary, the Pell memo, and now the new Pope Benedict book, the, the posthumous book, Pope Francis this week gave an interview to the Associated Press's Nicole Winfield. Now, in it, he touches on a range of subjects. Um, I was fascinated by the timing of this, Father. Uh, it seems the Pope is trying to take control of the narrative again, because for the last few weeks, uh, you have voices from the grave coming out and, and some living, uh, you, you know, posing challenges to the way in which he has been governing and leading the church in certain areas, not the pope himself, not the office, but the decisions made. Um, in this interview, he talks about the synodal way, homosexuality. I'm going to put this up on the screen. I'll read it to you. Uh, this is a bit of that interview the Pope offered. He said, we are all children of God, and God loves us as we are, and for the strength that each one of us has to fight for our dignity. Being homosexual is not a crime. It is not a crime. Yes, but it's a sin. Well, yes, but... Let's make the distinction first between sin and crime. But it's also a sin to lack charity and with one another. So what about that? Every man and every woman must have a window in their life where they can turn their hope and where they can see the dignity of God. And being homosexual isn't a crime. It's a human condition. Father, surely homosexuality is not a crime. But then the Pope says it is a sin which is not exactly what the church teaches. Clarify that. Yes, there's imprecise language here and confusion. Uh, sodomy is a sin. The misuse of the sexual organs uh, to seek venereal pleasure uh, in a way that's not uh, natural intercourse between a husband and a wife, that's what the sin is. It's clearly taught in the Bible and the natural law. Sodomy is a mortal sin. Now, laws against sodomy are designed to warn people not to commit that sin and to protect society where if that sin were tolerated, it might become more widespread. Uh, you know, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible is a warning to us. Now, the Pope, unfortunately, is becoming an advocate of decriminalization of anti-sodomy laws. And I, it's hard to believe that we would say that. In that same interview, uh, he quotes, uh, he's quoted as saying that you know, he knows African bishops are against changing those laws. He said they have to undergo a process of conversion. And I'm shaking my head. The people have to undergo conversion of those who want to commit sodomy. 
not the bishops who are telling them this is a sin, it's wrong, and the state should not legitimize it. So, you know, it, what is the basis where you would decriminalize sodomy? Do people have a right to commit sodomy? Is this somehow now a human right? That's what the left claims. The Catholic Church doesn't say that. Now, what about people who engage in prostitution? They're going to say, well, I, I don't like being stigmatized by laws that criminalize prostitution. Incest is against the law. People might say, well, that's consensual among adults. Why can't they do it? So a lot of confusion here. You know, I've worked with Courage over the years, and one of the most discouraging things that Courage members talk about is when the hierarchy doesn't teach the truth in a clear and understandable way. I mean, who's going to be happy with this decriminalization of sodomy? It's not that people support church teaching. They're, they're stunned. The Pope, if anything, should be saying laws that lead people into sin should never become law. Mm. Uh, Father Jerry, I have to move on to another important um, moment here from this interview with the AP, where the Pope spoke about the synod, the upcoming synod that's been really dominating the news cycle in Catholicism for a number of years. He said this, the German experience does not help because it is not a synod. It is not a serious synodal path. It is a so-called synodal path, but not one with the totality of the people of God, but one made by the elites. But the German synodal experience is beginning or has begun in the bishoprics, like all the other synods, with the people of God, and it is moving forward. Here the danger is that something very, very ideological trickles in. When ideology gets involved in church processes, the Holy Spirit goes home, because ideology overcomes the Holy Spirit. Father, the Pope, again, appears to denounce the German synodal way, yet it goes on. What effect will those words have both on the German synodal way and on the upcoming synod in Rome? Well, again, this is baffling and mystifying. If the pope is against the German synodal way as an elitist ideological activity, he should have shut it down. The German bishops owe him the same obedience as any other bishops. If this is really so bad and hurting the church, it should have been shut down. Now, I wish it were shut down uh, because it is veering into a terrible direction. Uh, basically, the synod in Germany is uh, the synodal way, as opposed to the synod on synodality, which is hard to distinguish. But the synodal way in Germany is basically a revolutionary movement to under, uh, change Catholic teaching on morality, anthropology, and the sacraments and they're pushing women's ordination. So it, it's a horrible movement, and the majority of the bishops in Germany have endorsed it. This is an indictment of Vatican inaction. It's one thing to tell the German bishops, I don't like what you're doing. It's another thing to say, stop doing it. And the German synod, mm. synod on synodality, the separate process, if that's going to happen, they ought to shut this other one down, because, you know, warnings about your elitist group of ideologues, they laugh that off. Batzing has already said they're going to form their synodal committee to start a synodal uh, consultation. They want to have a permanent parliament type thing where laity uh, would be uh, on equal footing with bishops to tell people what to do. This is horrible, but this is what's going on. Well, Father, I have to say, as I read those comments from the Pope, I thought, wait a minute, 
the, the synodal way undertaken in Rome is also has been controlled and the documents created by a small elite group of handpicked people. It's not like the entire church took part in this. I know there was the pro forma, oh, go poll all the dioceses. Literally infinitesimal percentages of people took part in that synodal way at the diocesan level. So the, the whole game is kind of like the German synodal way, and one gets the feeling that the ideology that the Pope rules and is concerned about in Germany might also be trickling into the global synodal way. I mean, you, you had Bishop McElroy here in the United States, Cardinal McElroy, uh, say one of the most difficult challenges they're going to have at this synodal way in Rome is dealing with female ordination. Uh, really? Uh, there's nothing difficult about that. It's already been answered. If you attempt to invalidly ordain a woman, you're excommunicated. Uh, the, that's the teaching of the church. That's canon law. You cannot change the nature of the sacraments because they are gifts from Christ to his church. Bishops and cardinals who say this is a problem, they're the problem for saying that. The problem is the rebellious element in the church which wants to overthrow Catholicism and replace it with a man-made religion. Uh, this is, that's mm. baffling to hear a cardinal say that. Doesn't he accept what canon law, what John Paul II, Benedict Paul VI, and every pope before them said? Pope Francis has likewise said in a recent interview, you can ordain women. So th this is ridiculous to keep bringing yep. this up. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the synod, uh, Pope Francis has appointed a well-known uh, pro-LGBT priest to lead a retreat for bishops prior to the start of the next phase of the synod on synodality, English Dominican father Timothy Radcliffe. He's expected to lead a three-day retreat in October to kick off the synod of bishops at the Vatican. Your thoughts on this appointment and uh, what message does that send? When you appoint someone who's publicly criticized the church's teaching on homosexual uh, activity uh, and that the church considers it to be gravely sinful and immoral, when a person who doesn't agree with that is now going to be instructing in the spiritual life all the participants in the synod, you've made a terrible decision. And this is really scandalous. Uh, why can't we get a preacher who will simply teach the faith as been handed down from the apostles, including on this contested issue? You know, we've been discussing this for about a year, Raymond, on TV with the uh, papal posse, and all we're talking about every show is homosexuality, as if this is the most important problem in the life of the church. It's not. It's been made that way by those who want to change the church's teaching. Most Christians passive, pacifically and calmly accept the fact that sodomy is a mortal sin. They don't question that because that's what God teaches. Uh, finally, Pope Francis said in an AP interview that he was surprised, and I want your reaction to this. This is a story we've been covering, that he was surprised by the Father Rupnik scandal. Now, this was that Jesuit who was invited by the Pope to preach a Lenten retreat after he was excommunicated on allegations of sexual and religious abuse of nine, I believe, religious sisters. He says, the Pope, he had nothing to do with the way that was handled. Your reaction? Well, you know, he was excommunicated because he had absolved a, uh, an accomplice in a base sin, it's technically speaking, meaning he had sex with a, a, a religious sister and then gave her absolution. Mm -hmm. He was excommunicated. Right. Somehow that excommunication was overturned in the, in the quick pace of less than a month. Uh, and then he was accused a second time, this time of sexually abusing nine nuns. 
And what's going on here? The Pope says he wasn't involved in anything. Uh, wait a minute, Rupnik was there in your Vatican retreat uh, in between. You, you, that, you, know, you didn't have any hesitation, Holy Father, in bringing a known, uh, let's be blunt, the guy's a, a raping of nuns, that he's a guy to give her a spiritual conference in the Vatican. And didn't the Pope think that basically all this stuff might come out and it would be embarrassing? You know, Rupnik has not been thrown mm. out of the priesthood. I, this is un unbelievable. Uh, that this man is still mm. exercising priestly mission in public. I know he's under restrictions, but he ignored those for a long time. It sends a terrible message mm. to the world that when nuns get taken advantage of by unscrupulous and evil priests, that the priests basically float over it, and then the hierarchy's not too worried, mm. and then, you know, the, 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 the statute of limitations, which is regularly put aside, was not. So therefore he got off scot-free because he committed these sins, you know, a long time ago. Big deal. Should the, uh, McCarrick did should a lot the Pope of lift those, a long time ago. Should the Pope lift that statute of limitations and allow Rupnik to stand trial at the Vatican? At, Rupnik should stand trial tomorrow. They have enough evidence to convict this guy and throw him out from based on what I know in public, and I'm sure their archives have a lot more information. If the one nun that who went public with a letter about what happened to her, mm -hmm. if her testimony were read in an open court, there's no way Rupnik is going to get out of this. Uh, this is making us look ridiculous when personal friends of important people, including the Pope, somehow can float above the law, and then their victims are basically, you know, you have to be silent because, sorry, the statute of limitations uh, is in effect. No, they deserve their day in court. Mm. Heartbreaking story. Father, we will leave it there. You can find Father Jerry's commentary at thecatholicthing.org. Thank you, Father Jerry. Thank you, Raymond. Walt Disney Productions was once considered the most family-friendly studio in Hollywood. But a new documentary contends that this once great American institution has strayed from its original path. The trajectory is outlined in a new documentary called Walt's Disenchanted Kingdom. Here to tell us about it is the film's executive producer, president of the Catholic League, Dr. Bill Donahue. Bill, why do a film about the ideological drift of the Walt Disney Company? Why not do something that's more church-focused? Well, the Catholic Church, of course, uh, does believe in a culture of sexual reticence, and we, we now have a, a society of sexual recklessness. And we, we are concerned, the church, about the, the dominant culture, not just the culture within which the church operates most of the time. We, children are under attack. Uh, they're, they're being used by sexual engineers. And if the church doesn't speak up about this and just talks about pablum, no one's going to pay any attention to what it says. Look, we know the culture's been in trouble for some time, but when the most family-friendly industry in American history, namely Disney, takes into this woke culture and now gets involved with this whole idea of transgender madness, then there's something serious. Catholics need to speak out because our moral voice is still the preeminent one in American society. Uh, Bill, the documentary contends that the Disney brand has been politicized to advance agendas other than family entertainment. Why, in your estimation? Well, they're listening to a small but very vocal, vocal minority of people. Uh, from what we've learned, I can't prove this, apparently most gays are certainly not in promoting this. Uh, there is a radical element 
of gays and, and straights, for that matter, and, and those involved in the transgender movement in particular, which is a pernicious movement. First of all, there's no such thing as a transgender person. You're either a male or a female. Let's get that straight. This is a war against nature and against nature's God. And for Disney to get involved in this, and so the viewers understand, remember in Florida about a year ago, they were entertaining the idea of DeSantis, the governor there, saying we shouldn't be teaching kids in the, in the kindergarten, five-year-olds, first grade, second grade, and third-year-olds, we shouldn't be teaching them that maybe you're not satisfied being a boy or a girl, and that maybe you should consider becoming uh, a person of the opposite sex. We should just let the kids be alone. We shouldn't be teaching them sex of any kind at that age. They, these kids are just getting off the tricycle, and now you're trying to transition them to another sex. That is child exploitation. It's child abuse. And for Disney to take the position on the people who say, no, it's okay to teach this. Disney wants to wants kids in kindergarten, first, second, and third grades to be questioned about whether they're happy being a boy or a girl, uh, Walt Disney, as I, as I say in the movie, must be turning over in his grave. Here's a clip from uh, Walt's Disenchanted Kingdom. Watch. The largest family entertainment company in the world. Disney CEO is reversing course today. Losing their way. What happened with Disney was the CEO got bullied by his activist radical employees. Outside the iconic Walt Disney Studios in Burbank, California. Say gay! Say gay! I did not take an oath to subcontract out my leadership to a corporation based in Burbank, California. It's just all about trying to seize the minds of children as early as possible and to propagandize them and brainwash them. The vast majority of the gay community is not behind this crap. They see the nuclear family as a threat to them. Bill, you tried to reach out to the former Disney CEO, Bob Chapek. Why did you reach out to him? I thought that, you know, since he's listening to the radical element in the LGBT uh, community, perhaps he will, if he's open-minded at all, perhaps he'll sit down and, and, and speak with me and with Tony Perkins. I, I wrote jointly for Tony and me. Of course, I spoke to Tony first. He's the head of the Family Research Council, one of the nation's leading evangelicals. I wrote to him on April the 8th of last year. It, was, it wasn't any boilerplate, nothing incendiary. You've listened to one side. Would you please listen to our side? We'd like to sit down and talk with you. He blew us off. Hmm. And Bob Iger, his successor, he was also his predecessor, Iger's back there, uh, he was also given an opportunity to at least comment on this. They don't want to speak with anybody. Now they're going to pay the price. Let me tell you something, Ray. There's no such thing as an iron law in history, all right? Things change. Things can change. Disney right now has is, 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 is gone down that woke agenda and embedded himself with the far left. I think it's reversible. And I think if enough people push back, that's why I did the documentary. This is a cultural marker. We're not in this for the money. If anything, it's cost us a lot of money. We want to change the culture. And the Catholic Church's voice has to be heard. And they're doing that, I think, through the Catholic League. At least we hope to be representative of that. This is a first-class production. Jason Meath, whom we commissioned to do this, uh, did a masterful job. 
Now, as you report in the documentary, uh, and this was reported widely, there are certain keys, um, guideposts, if you will, that govern the way staff deals with the guests at the Disney parks. The company recently added a new key. It's called inclusion. Well, what's wrong with that, Bill, being inclusive of all the people yeah. coming to the park? Well, there's nothing wrong with, being, with diversity either, except when you use diversity as a wedge to promote uh, divisiveness and division in our society. And the term inclusion always doesn't seem to include us, does it? I've seen that dropped all over. It's a mantra. But it, if, if they believed in inclusion, why did Bob Chapek not sit down with Bill Donahue and Tony Perkins to discuss this? Why were we excluded from the conversation in the first place, since we represent uh, a good swath of, of America uh, as a Catholic leader and as a Protestant leader? Uh, but they didn't want to, they, they're not interested in our inclusion. And how dare they use inclusion as, as some kind of a hammer or a wedge to say it's okay to question little kids, little boys and girls uh, about their sexuality? Why would you want to do that? These kids look, are just trying to learn the alphabet, and you're getting involved in matters sexual. And I wouldn't care if it's straight or gay. It has nothing to do with that. There's a time and a place for everything. This is not the time or the place. Bill, you mentioned a moment ago that you don't believe that Disney is uh, irreparably lost. Uh, my question is, right. given the productions that they've released in recent years that you've taken great umbrage with and at, um, why go through the effort of trying to redeem them? Why not just throw your support behind another production company, another studio? Well, for one thing, Disney's still number one. I mean, they are the catalog, whether we like it or not. And I do believe that the average American is on our side. In fact, the survey's already proven. It's not a matter of speculation. The surveys show that the American people have had it with this whole transgender mania. They've had it with this idea of getting to kids at an early age, questioning them about their sexuality, how happy they might be. Uh, no, the, the public is on our side. But remember, the public is not organized. It's, we have a tyranny of the minority in this country, and they're pushing hard in Disney. But what I'm trying to do is to get to the shareholders and the, and the big CEO people and say, look, it's one thing to be to teach tolerance of different segments of our of our population. It's quite another to buy into this whole political agenda, which most Americans find uh, there, there's a sense of revulsion on it. This is not a close call. I think if Disney came to its senses, they'd realize they've gone too far with this. Even people who've been involved in the transgender movement now, uh, Erica Anderson and others who've been involved in this in the beginning have said, this has gone too far. We want nothing to do with it. We want Disney to go back to its moorings and, 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 and not get involved in radical politics at all. They should stay out of politics. So should sports. I mean, it, it, our whole country has become mm -hmm. politicized on critical race theory or on transgenderism. The American people are not in favor of either. Just go out there and, and sell your brand without getting involved in politics. No, there have to be there have to be safe and sacred spaces where Americans are not subject to their divisions and political, uh, uh, you know, indoctrination. No matter where it falls, and I, and I do think we lose something, and it's it's why we're so fraught as a people because there is no safe space, there is no quiet place where we can gather without having politics or ideology being a part of it, and that's that's a tragedy. It's an American tragedy. Well, it is. And, you know, I've been doing this job for almost 30 years, Ray, and we found this kind of left-wing 
uh, animus against Christianity in particular, but against all traditional moral values. We found it in, in the entertainment industry, in the media, in education, the arts, nonprofit activist sectors. What's new, and it's new only in the last five years, the healthcare industry, the military, uh, we see it in the corporate 500. Uh, it's always the elite. It's the ruling class that is the problem. The average American's a good person. The ruling class didn't get the memo. We've had it with this. Time out with this stuff. Get out of politics. Bill Donahue, we will leave it there. You can watch the new documentary, Waltz, Disenchanted Kingdom. It's at catholicleague.org and on Amazon Prime. Thank you, Bill. Thank you so much. Attacks on Catholic priests in Nigeria are occurring at an alarming rate. Earlier this month, the priest was burned alive in his home during an attempted burglary. Catholic priests are being murdered in Nigeria. Uh, joining me now to shed light on what's happening in Africa is senior fellow at the Hudson Institute Center for Religious Freedom, Nina Shea. Nina, thanks for coming. Uh, a Nigerian Catholic priest, Father Isaac Achi, was burned alive, another seriously injured earlier this month during an attempted burglary. Uh, why is this happening? Why are we seeing this uptick of violence against particularly Catholic priests in Nigeria? Well, there have been 20 uh, priests, Catholic priests, at least 20 priests since the beginning of 2022 who have been abducted, and five were killed last year, and then uh, including this uh, Father Ache in, in his rectory. And that's another thing to realize, Raymond, that these priests are being hunted down in their church grounds and in their rectories. They are not just random victims. They are being targeted. And they're being targeted by um, all sides. There's various Islamist groups, and there's uh, people that are called bandits or herders mm. or gunmen. These are members of uh, uh, these are militant members of the Fulani tribe up in the north and central parts of Nigeria. The president uh, Buhari of Nigeria. And Nigeria, by the way, is the most populous country in, in Nigeria that's half Christian, half Muslim, and has one of the largest economies. So if it destabilizes along um, religious ethnic grounds, it's going to be devastating for the entire sub-Saharan region. It's going to destabilize that. Wow. Um, but he is, this president is irresponsibly and wrongly um, and cruelly really exploiting his um, uh, his political base. He's 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 um, giving a pass to his political base, which are these northern Muslim tribes. Not um, uh, prosecuting anyone for these horrible crimes, um, mm. and and they it has been the subject of Catholic bishops' complaints in Nigeria recently. Where is the United States at this moment? Why aren't we hearing anything from the Biden administration? We give aid to these countries like we, we, we pour water. Why aren't we attaching some sort of guarantees of protection for these religious minorities um, along with that aid? Well, we should be doing so, and we're pushing for that. We hope that there will be legislation or a resolution in Congress to that effect mm -hmm. shortly. It's, it's our priority. And, Raymond, I, I think that's overstated. I think there were 39 incidents or 30 incidents. Um, the Age of the Church in Needs has the list. It's, it's uh, 20 priests abducted. And, um, and, and five murdered. And that's big enough. Um, Open Doors came out with mm -hmm. a new report saying that 90% of all the Christians killed in the world murdered for their faith in 2022 uh, were um, in Nigeria. 
and 90% of those abducted mm. were in Nigeria, of all the Catholic priests. So, uh, abducted. And what's driving this, Nina? I mean, is it just, just anti-Christian uh, uh, bias from uh, these Muslim tribes? Is that what's driving this? And then a politician taking advantage of it? Well, I think that there is... Um, the State Department likes to blame, believe it or not, climate change, which is, uh, <laughs> you know, it, that's, that's an excuse for doing nothing. There can be no policy that will rectify mm -hmm. that in the next you know, uh, short term. So um, it, I think there is a radicalization going on. Um, we have ISIS in Nigeria, in, in um, the northeastern mm -hmm. part. We have um, uh, Boko Haram, which is another terror group. Ansar, I mean, there's a lot of terror groups um, in the region and in Nigeria itself. And uh, these uh, criminals, mm -hmm. these um, other Muslims are uh, becoming militants. And I think that they have an agenda. There used to be a caliphate in that region um, in the early 19th century. And I think that there's mm -hmm. a, a sort of longing for that, again, as an answer to some of their, their problems. These are mm -hmm. nomadic uh, herdsmen um, of the Fulani tribe. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it's, uh, it's, it needs, it, it, they've been allowed to go rampage um, with impunity. The government does not arrest them. The security forces do not arrest them. The security forces have not been trained and reinforced and have given no, been given no command to do that. And so there's no prosecution. Nina, People are killed. Nina, you are drafting a Nigeria religious atrocity bill for the U.S. House of Representatives mm -hmm. right now. How do you hope that bill will uh, further the cause and protect the Christians in this region, what do you seek to do? What does it seek to do? Well, it seeks um, several things, Raymond. The first is the acknowledgement that this is going on, that there is religious persecution happening, religious hostility. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, and the State Department refuses to do that. Again, blaming it on climate change, which is absurd. Um, and then, uh, I mean, there may be a climate change element, but they're killing children, they're killing, they're beheading women, enslaving women, Christian women. Um, so this is, this is um, you know, terrorist activity. Um, second, we hope to get a special envoy appointed to the region because the State Department is obviously not getting the correct information, it's getting biased information from our embassy in mm -hmm. Nigeria and has been for a long time. So this, uh, they need to have the facts before them in an authoritative way and a special envoy, a good one, could do that. Um, we also hope yeah. to see um, more aid to the local um, civil groups, especially the faith-based groups that are trying to care for these horribly mutilated survivors and, and mutilated physically and psychologically. They said they are overwhelmed right now with, the, with, these, uh, with that work. Nina, before we run out of time, I want you to update us on the plight of Cardinal Joseph Zinn. We caught glimpses of him uh, mm -hmm. during Cardinal Pell's funeral. Um, uh, the, the, the CCP allowed him to go to Rome with restrictions. What can you tell us about his situation as he returns to China? Yes, well, he had a temporary passport um, to go to Rome. It's been, uh, he had to give it back, and he had to return. And he's on uh, being investigated uh, for a national mm -hmm. security crime. So um, he's, uh, that's a very serious offense. 
and Jimmy Lai is also facing that those charges, and it yes. could mean life imprisonment. So the the, the 91-year-old cardinal yeah. now could spend his remaining years behind bars. He is actually voluntarily, we think, going to prison every day, according to Pope Francis. Um, he goes there every day, all day, to uh, minister to the um, to carry out his ministry with the prisoners. Well. Nina, I'm glad you brought that up, that, that interview with Pope Francis. We, we covered it earlier with the AP. Uh, and he did speak of cardinals in there. I want you to listen to this and uh, give me your thoughts, your reaction. He's a charming old man. He's charming, Zen. Well, the Chinese, every one of them is charming when they want to be nice. They are very nice. He's in a process that's administrative, something like that. I didn't understand much of what it was. Something like if you were caught in the street driving without a license. A disciplinary thing. And it will end with him being forced to pay a fine and nothing more. What does Cardinal Zen do? He's a prison chaplain. And he spends it in prison all day long. He's a friend of the communist guards and the prisoners. Everyone welcomes him. He's a man of great character. The most feisty part of Zen is kind of disappearing. I'm not saying that it isn't there. It is there, but it is hidden behind this pastoral side. Now, Nina, I'm going to refrain from commenting because I'm probably too close to this story, but um, what do you make of the Pope's comments about this suffering cardinal in China? Yeah, there, the, this this comment is really strange. It's mystifying. Why would there be? It's a gratuitous disparaging, I think, of the cardinal, uh, minimizing the legal trouble he's in, um, not just from yeah. the administrative uh, case, which is ongoing, but uh, he's appealing, but um, also this national security law. He's also um, this started though, Raymond. I don't think this is just venting on the Pope's part um, because he's annoyed with him, um, although he clearly is. Um, th he's <laughs> he's um, you know this has been going on um, since his first arrest when other um, top level diplomatic officials from the Vatican um, condemned him as being uh, stubborn. As being having a psychological barrier or intemperate, so th this is um, does not make sense because he is Cardinal Zen is beloved as a heroic leader mm -hmm. of the church by left, right, and center. I mean, I don't know anyone else who's critical of Cardinal Zen other than the Vatican officials. So I, I really don't well. understand it. I think that there is a bit of kowtowing going on here. I think that the the mm -hmm. Pope and the other diplomats are so intent on dialogue and maintaining a dialogue with the Chinese Communist Party that they um, want to show that they are not approving, they want to signal to them that they are not approving of anything Cardinal Zen says that may be critical of them. Well, you, you know how Zen got on their bad side, Nina. He dared to speak out against that Vatican-China deal, and it's a bad deal. It compromised the religious freedom of faithful people. It destroyed and allowed the liturgy to be deformed in the Word of God itself. It forbade anyone under 18 from coming to a church. I mean, this is, this is madness. So, of course, he spoke out against that to defend the faith of his people in Hong Kong and mainland China. And as you say, he's a hero to those people. And I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to withhold allowing, giving full vent to this, but it is woe to those who would, who would persecute and demonize 
someone like this man, who's facing such awful persecution for standing for the truth. I cannot understand why Vatican officials uh, would uh, give voice to this kind of mean-spirited, nasty commentary when a, when a man is facing imprisonment for the rest of his days. And that's the reality. I'll give you the last word. Well, you're right, Raymond. It's not a good look at all for the Vatican. It makes, I think, them look bad uh, because uh, Cardinal Zen mm -hmm. is so widely admired, universally admired around the world outside of the Chinese Communist Party. And the dialogue that mm -hmm. he is being offered up for as a sacrificial lamb, so to speak, um, it is, um, has been going on for 30 years. Um, and it has borne yeah. virtually no fruit. I, I don't think it's borne any fruit. Yeah, well, you can't dialogue with people when you represent nothing. You know, that, that's just called capitulation. The dialogue's easy. You do what I say, bye-bye. And that's basically what the Vatican yeah. is engaging in here. Yeah. Uh, we will leave it there. You can follow the work and reporting of Nina Shea on the persecution of Christians in China and around the world by visiting Hudson.org. Nina, thank you. Thank you. November is National Family Caregivers Month, and my next guest's personal experience will certainly speak to the many of you who are either caring for or did care for loved ones who are ill. She is the director of communications at EWTN, the author of a very personal new book, Walking the Way of the Cross for Caregivers, how to cope practically, emotionally, and spiritually when a loved one has a serious illness. Here to share with us her inspiring story is Michelle Lockie Johnson. Michelle, thanks for being here. Uh, as anyone who has done it certainly knows, caring for a loved one who's seriously ill can be an enormous challenge. I want to start with your own story. Tell us about your late husband, Stu, and what you both endured for eight years. Well, my husband was an amazing man, um, and I was about to find out just how amazing. Um, he had eight—he had three bouts of cancer over eight years, had his leg amputated up to the hip, and he became a quadriplegic. And during that time, I was working here at EWTN, thank God, uh, because there was a a very good health care program, and they did allow me to work from home when needed. But um, it was a time that was very difficult and yet very blessed. And one of the things that I really emphasize to people when I talk about this is, you know, you think sometimes in the beginning that um, it's just going to be all something terrible. There were so many beautiful memories that we created over those eight years. We got so much closer to each other as we worked together to save his life. And his cancer was misdiagnosed for a year. So if that hadn't happened, you know, he'd probably still be here. But they told us he had very little chance of living more than a few months. And instead, he lived eight years. You titled the book Walking the Way of the Cross for Caregivers. Why did you decide to arrange it that way and frame, uh, really, what is also a spiritual and emotional uh, advice book? Why did you decide to frame it in the form of the Stations of the Cross? Well, Raymond, I was actually in church about seven years after my husband's death, and I had been kind of just messing around, you know, writing different parts of the book and not really knowing how I was going to do this. And we were saying the Stations of the Cross, and all of a sudden, 
the things that had happened over those eight years just started flashing through my mind. And I was just given to know mm. that we really were walking the way of the cross. And I think it's a beautiful thing because, you know, I didn't think of it that way when it was happening. But if you do, and I share that with people, you, it gives your suffering cosmic meaning. meaning. It just, it, it makes everything, because it, you're following Jesus' way. Michelle, you had two specific audiences in mind when you wrote this book. Uh, this is from the preface. Two kinds of people are likely to pick up this book. The first, and hopefully the largest group, will be those of you whose loved ones are ill and who are seeking advice, reassurance, and a companion to accompany you on the journey to which you've been called. Some of you may have picked up the book because you're wondering, how could there be any blessings in terminal illness and whether pulling the plug, either literally or figuratively, isn't a better option? Michelle, talk to me about those two audiences and the case of Brittany Maynard, which you address in the book. I do, Raymond, and she became the face of the Right to Die movement a number of years ago. Um, if, if for people who don't remember, um, she was, you know, diagnosed with what the doctor said was a terminal illness, and she didn't want to have to go through um, what she saw as a great deal of suffering. So her family uh, took her to Oregon, where she did commit suicide. Um, and I'm not telling that story to uh, be judgmental about her. But I'm telling the story because I want people who read this book to see what I believe death with dignity really looks like. And it's not killing yourself, because we're going to go through the cross either way. With, when the person dies, that's another cross. And if you do it prematurely, you are going to miss so much. You're going to miss the opportunity to find out what selfless love really is. And I can tell you, you will have conversations with your loved one that you never would have had. You will have chances to go places and do things that will be memories for a lifetime. And you will grow in virtue. It was a battle the two of us were fighting together, and it drew us closer to each other because, you know, we came to depend on each other in different ways. And I got a chance to see yeah. my husband was the bravest man I've ever seen. And there was so many instances where I got to see that. When he had his leg amputated, I've never seen more bravery in my life. Um, we had to wait the entire day. We are sitting there. He couldn't eat, couldn't drink. They brought him in at the end of the day, and I watched him. You know, we prayed together, and as they came in to wheel him out, he put his hands on either side of the gurney and just gave that nod like he was going into battle. And it's a memory. I mean, yes, it's a hard memory, but it's also a memory of a man who wanted to be here for me. And it's a memory mm -hmm. of love. In the book, you consider caretaking a calling. You write, uh, whether he or she leaves earthly life or lives to fight another day, this experience will change both of you. If you understand your purpose here, it is more likely to make you better rather than bitter. Speak to me about the enormity of that role. Uh, explain how caregivers can better understand what their, 
really not only their role, their responsibility is in that moment. And about the memories, you all made a determined effort to make new memories, even with the prospect of death looming. Yes, we did, Raymond. And I mean, the, what you just brought up is incredibly important, because if you understand your purpose, the Lord, the God the Father sent his son down to suffer and die for us. So I thought about that a lot, because otherwise, I mean, what's the purpose of all this? Jesus's purpose of coming down here was to save us, you know, from our sins. What is our purpose in suffering? Because there is a purpose, and Jesus is the model. You know, as I read the book, uh, it really does uh, awaken you and sensitize you to not only the reason for our journey here, but the reason we go on this journey together, particularly when you're talking about spouses or parents, um, and the, the deep spiritual and life uh, and eternal truths that can be gleaned from even these painful moments. So oftentimes, the, the, the healings we get are not the healings we expect. And uh, that was sort of my big takeaway as I, as I read your book. As I mentioned earlier, Michelle, November is National Caregivers Month. With the aging of the population, uh, and very likely many more caregivers at home at this point in their lives, what's the most important message you want readers to take away from walking the way of the cross for caregivers? Well, you know, there's several messages that are important, and one is that the good times are not over, okay? And I have a whole chapter in there about how we went to a dude ranch in Wyoming when he only had less than a year to live, and, you know, there's good times. But the most important thing that people have to do is make the decision, number one, that they're in this for the long haul, and, and that they're going to walk with Jesus along the way of the cross in order to do this. You know, people will sometimes say, well, I couldn't have done what you did. And I want to say to them, well, I couldn't have done it either if I hadn't been, if I hadn't turned to God. Because anything I did that was good was a result of the grace that He gave me. Um, I give examples in the book. For example, in the very beginning, I was standing outside of the room where my husband was laying, and I had to—he was waiting for me to wrap his leg because it was filled with cancer. And I didn't humanly want to go in there and do this, and I, I, I tell this story. But even if you turn just slightly to the Lord, which I did internally, and I was given this prayer, which is not the way I normally pray, and it was, Divine Physician, help me. And at that moment, I got the grace. And I walked in and I said, come on, honey, let's do this. And he was like, I'm so sorry I have to put you through this. And I said, it's not a problem. And it wasn't because I got the grace. And so that's why we cannot take this into our hands. It's important that as a couple or as a family, whatever, you're, you're working together and you know you're not doing it of, of yourselves. Because most of us, I would say all of us, could not do it if we didn't have Jesus by our side. And I, I so mean that. Michelle, thank you for being here. Walking the Way of the Cross for Caregivers by Michelle Lockheed Johnson is available in bookstores everywhere and online, including EWTN's catalog. For more information and resources, visit caregiversofthecross.com. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Raymond.
That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, I thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.